Attention, all troops. She's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Reckonerless. While I had played Atari and Nintendo and eventually got into the Sega consoles. In the 90s, I had pretty much switched to being a PC gamer, playing most of my video games on a computer. But as the 90s drew to a close, I started to think that maybe I would get back into consoles. And that was mostly because I was hearing about this new upcoming Sega console, the Sega Dreamcast. It was being talked about in TV, on the internet, and especially in magazines. What was exciting to me is that I found myself buying into the hype. I found myself getting excited for a new console, which is something that hadn't happened in a very long time. So as 1999 came to a close, I finally got my Dreamcast. And as soon as I opened it and started playing with it, I loved it. I had gotten it around Christmas time. I'm pretty sure the window between Christmas and New Year's, I spent the majority of my free time playing the Dreamcast nonstop. Staying up till 3 in the morning, it was like I was a kid again. It had a great selection of games and peripherals, and it just worked really well. It had everything I wanted. With this newfound fandom, I started shopping more, going to stores to buy games or just to browse them to see what was up. I eventually started going on a regular basis to an electronics boutique at a mall where I lived and would talk to the guys that worked there. They knew I was a Dreamcast fan, and one of them at least was a pretty big Dreamcast supporter. I remember going in there one day after work, maybe see if anything had fallen into the used section that I could pick up, and that's when I got the news. It was done so casually, I guess they expected me to already know, because they just casually said to me, it's a shame they discontinued the Dreamcast. This thing hadn't been out long at all, and they were taking it away. I was shocked. I thought they might be joking, but... If anyone that I knew was going to know, it would be them. So I just kind of walked out of the store. I went home, got on the internet, started poking around and confirmed what they said was true. I couldn't believe it. While I would buy other consoles after this, the Dreamcast was probably the last great console moment for me. One where I was excited about the promise that this new magical box was going to bring me in terms of gaming fun. And I wouldn't give up on it even after it was discontinued. I would continue to buy games, especially when they went on clearance, and continue to play it long after everybody else had moved on to other consoles. Whenever I have bought a console afterwards or have even considered buying one, I think about the Dreamcast and then usually have been let down because while these new consoles might be more advanced and have more features, they don't exceed my expectations in the way that the Dreamcast did at the time. I think like most pop culture, I think consoles and video games fall within a window, just like music and movies and television. And you have windows that open up for you. And during those windows, things are more memorable. For me, the Dreamcast was the last big window when it came to consoles. And while I keep hoping that another one will open, I don't count on it. And so while other consoles have entered my home, they are never as vivid in my memories as the Dreamcast. And so on today's show, I'd like to talk to you about 
what to me was one of the last great consoles, the Sega Dreamcast. We'll talk about the company and people who made it. We'll talk about the tech, we'll talk about the games, the advertising, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. Dreamcast is a video game console that was released by Sega, which came out in late 1998 in Japan and late 1999 in North America and Europe. It was the first of the six generations of video game consoles beating the Xbox, GameCube, and PlayStation 2 to market. It would also sadly be Sega's final video game console. A little bit about video game console generations. This label didn't exist when consoles began, and it's not even widely agreed what consoles fall into what generations. It basically, like generations that are applied to people, tries to find traits that are in common and apply them broadly to the consoles that came out during a certain period of time. And right now, we're in the seventh generation of video game consoles. The Dreamcast kicked off the sixth generation that included the PlayStation, GameCube, and Xbox, as I said. I've read various different people's takes on generations, and most people will agree that the first generation were the dedicated consoles that came out, things like the Atari Pong or the Coleco Telstar consoles, and then the second generation, which is the one that I started off with, would be the Atari 2600 and the ColecoVision, The third generation is where a lot of people entered into gaming because of the Nintendo Entertainment System, and folded into that would also be the Atari 7800 and the Sega Master System, and then the systems would flow from that. And we're concerned with the generation that's defined between the following years, 1998 to 2013. These are 32-bit systems that generally use optical media and include the Dreamcast, as I said, PlayStation 2, GameCube, and Xbox. Another defining characteristic of these consoles would also be they were the first ones that really embraced online connectivity. So online gaming became a thing with these consoles, although not to the extent that they would in the seventh generation when you get the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3. Before we talk about the Dreamcast itself, let's talk a little bit about Sega. Sega is a corporation that still exists to this day. The name itself is a portmanteau of service games, SE from service, GA from games. They started out basically as a coin-operated amusement company, and then from there would eventually get into making arcade games and finally consoles. Their first big console being the Sega Master System, although its first video game console was actually the SG-1000. The Sega Master System was the first Sega system I got to play 
but the one that really captured my attention at first would be the Sega Genesis, or Mega Drive, as it's known in other areas of the world. So while the Master System and Genesis had done well, Sega had kind of messed up and created a console called the Sega Saturn. It was expensive to make and was completely buried by the original PlayStation. There were lots of problems with the Saturn, and Sega hoped to learn from it. And one of their most important lessons was keep it simple. Try to create a console that is not complicated to build. So Sega would take multiple paths on their way to making the next console. And reports on when this started was sometime in the mid-90s. Rumors were that they were working with various companies, although most of those would turn out to be just rumors, often based on partnerships that would provide hardware to existing consoles, something like the Sega Saturn. In 97, a team at IBM was hired, led by Tatsuo Yamamoto, to work on a project in the U.S. that was codenamed Black Belt. Another team in Japan started to work on a system as well, and that was led by Hideki Sato. Both would take very different directions in terms of the hardware that they would use. And while they would use different hardware, the message from on high was it had to be from off-the-shelf components. The group in the U.S. was using technology from 3DFX, mainly the Voodoo 2 and Voodoo Banshee graphics processors. But Sega wanted them to use an SH-4 chip, even though the SH-4 was still in development, not a completely finished product yet. And there are lots of discussions online as to why this is. Some say it was because the SH-4 was being manufactured in Japan, and Sega was more comfortable working with them as a vendor. Others talk about the potential improved performance that one would get with that hardware over what was being worked on in America. Ultimately, the version that was being worked on in Japan was chosen to be the base hardware for what would become the Sega Dreamcast. At that point, they renamed the project Project Katana after the sword, and they continued to work on the system. While they might argue about hardware and which would be best, it was still going to be things they could buy from a vendor and get easily and assemble, much like the layout of a personal computer. And this would mean that the Dreamcast would be closer to a personal computer than any console that had come before it. That would mean power, but it also meant reduced cost. It also meant that game developers could begin working on games early. Sega could say to developers, hey, this system is going to be similar to the specs of this computer. If you develop a game that works on this computer, it will run on a Sega Dreamcast. One of the really interesting developments of the system was the inclusion of a modem in every Dreamcast, even though that raised the price of a Dreamcast by $15 per unit. And that is largely credited to future Sega.com CEO, Brad Huang, who had to convince the chairman of Sega that that was the future. And while we wouldn't get a lot of Dreamcast time online, he wasn't wrong. For a format, they went optical, which meant no cartridges. Instead, games would be on discs. To keep prices low, they didn't go with something like a DVD, which was still very expensive at the time, and instead worked with something more akin to a CD-ROM. 
and they called it the GD-ROM media format, which because it could go on CD, people online figured out how to crack them and copy these games onto other CDs. And I remember lots and lots of bootlegs floating around out there and then online them showing up where anybody could download them and burn them to a CD. Because the console was based on PC architecture, Microsoft would develop a version of Windows CE for the Dreamcast, which would make it easy to port PC games to the platform. And while it might have been easier for developers to develop games that way, developers quickly learned that you could get better performance by using the Sega OS rather than the user-friendlier version of the Microsoft operating system. Game technical overview. The Dreamcast is 3.3 pounds, and it is about 7.5 inches by about 7.75 inches by about 3 inches high. Its main CPU is a Hitachi SH4 32-bit RISC, R-I-S-C, that is clocked at 200 megahertz. Its rendering engine can draw more than 3 million polygons per second, although theoretically it would be capable of rendering 7 million polygons per second, or 6 million with textures and lighting. That's if you didn't have physics and game logic in a game and just wanted to show graphics. It can output 16.77 million colors simultaneously, and it can display video at 640 by 480. It had a 67 megahertz Yamaha AICA sound processor, that could generate 64 voices with PCM or ADPCM, which was 10 times the performance of Sega's Saturn sound system. It had 16 megabytes of RAM and an additional 8 megabytes of RAM for the graphics and 2 megabytes for sound. The GD-ROM drive was a 12x speed Yamaha. It came with AV cables for standard video and audio, but there were third-party RF modulator connectors and S-video cables as well as a VGA adapter to attach your Dreamcast to a computer or a VGA-enabled television set at 480p. And technical overview. Now, when I held the Dreamcast controller, I was quite happy. It has an analog stick, a D-pad, four action buttons, a start button, and two analog trigger buttons. At the time when it came out, other people did not like it. Reviews were fairly negative. And of course, because of that, third-party controllers came out pretty quickly. There were other fun controllers. This included an arcade-style joystick, a light gun, a fishing controller, and others. Sega would also produce a digital camera, the Dream Eye, that you could connect to your Dreamcast and could use it to take pictures and be involved in video chats over the internet. Interestingly, they also looked at building a telephone into the Dreamcast, kind of an internet-enabled phone, but that never came to fruition. They also had these removable storage devices called the VMU, or Visual Memory Unit. The device had a monochrome liquid crystal display. It kind of could be its own little game itself, acting as a handheld game console, and was just kind of fun. One of my favorite what-ifs was from iOmega, and I don't even know if people remember iOmega, but they made zip drives which were these large magnetic disks that could hold a lot of information. They were going to release a Dreamcast-compatible zip drive that could store up to 100 megabytes of data, but that never happened. Not sure what it would have been used for or how it would have been incorporated, but sadly it never was released. 
Has anyone seen my stress management presentation? Where's my Hamlet essay, I pray? I doth trashed it. If you have an iOmega zip drive, your family can keep track of everything. I downloaded some military school information. You seen it? What? So make copies of all your stuff on 100 megabyte zip disks, so nothing gets lost. Almost. Hello? Anyone see my retainer? Get an iOmega zip drive today, because it's your stuff. So as I said, Sega had the foresight to include a modem for getting people online which was modular, so it could be upgraded in the future. The original version had a 33.6 kilobits per second modem, which was originally released in Japan, although when they started selling them in the U.S. after September of 1999, it had a 56 kilobits per second modem. Later, of course, you could add broadband to the system when it became more widely available in the U.S. and Japan. To get online, there were internet services that you could contact. Dreykus was the internet service for the Dreamcast consoles in Japan. Dream Arena was the service provided for Dreamcast consoles in Europe. And SegaNet was the internet service for online gaming in the United States. And that was created through a partnership between GTE and Sega. They had a partnership with AT&T, making AT&T WorldNet the preferred ISP. So that would come with information when you got your Dreamcast, sign up for WorldNet. And Excite, if you remember Excite, was the exclusive portal partner for SegaNet. Microsoft was a participant early in the development of the service, but eventually dropped out before the launch. It's evening in America. And across this great land, young men and women are coming together through the power of the internet with one common goal to whoop each other's booties. Sega Dreamcast games are now online, unleashing the ultimate horror, your fellow Americans. Jack into SegaNet through your Dreamcast console and join your countrymen in the virtual arena. Play NFL 2K1 and cream for meatheads you've never even met. Play NBA 2K1 and school some farm boy without suffering the scent of livestock. Or play Quake 3 and waste some Jersey punk from the sanctity of your own home. And so, America, SegaNet is born. And suddenly we are one proud nation, indivisible, united in the pursuit of whoopin' booty. So everything was all set up. They had online gaming, peripherals, people were working on games. Now they needed a name. And Sega held a public competition with thousands of entries. They would eventually settle on Dreamcast, which is a portmanteau of Dream and Broadcast. Sega had thought that maybe it should remove its name completely from the system and instead establish a new gaming brand like PlayStation. But ultimately, they decided to retain the name and be the Sega Dreamcast. It's at this point they came up with the spiral logo that would represent the Dreamcast. And they needed a startup sound. And that was composed by musician Ryuchi Sakamoto. And it went a little something like this. So here are the details of the costs so far. Sega had spent 50 to 80 million on hardware development, upwards of 200 million on software development, and then 300 million on promotion worldwide. 
it was finally ready to go, and the release would start in Japan. The Saturn was dying, and they thought this is the perfect time to release the next generation of consoles there. Unfortunately, they were having problems making the Dreamcast there due to a high failure rate in the manufacturing process. So they had to actually stop taking pre-orders. Still, there was a lot of hype, and the console launched there on November 27, 1998, and was sold out by the end of the first day. That might have largely been because a port of a very popular game, Virtua Fighter 3, was available, and that was a game that sold very well, as opposed to other games there in Japan. They estimate that had they been able to keep up with demand, they probably could have sold somewhere between two and 300,000 extra Dreamcasts if they had been able to build them. Now you're probably wondering, where is Sonic? Sonic is the mascot of Sega and was supposed to be a launch title, but unfortunately it was delayed. It would arrive in the weeks that would follow, but sadly, because they kind of missed out on that hype cycle, sales were lower than they expected. They had wanted to sell over a million units by February of 1999, but they sold fewer than 900,000. And even before the Dreamcast was launched in other markets, they were already lowering the price in Japan. Japan had some really interesting variants on the hardware, as opposed to what you could get in Europe and the US. They would have special editions for Hello Kitty, Resident Evil, Seaman, and various color variations that you couldn't get in the US, although you'll find them online nowadays, and they're often quite eye-catching. While things weren't going well for Dreamcast in Japan, they also weren't going great for the Dreamcast in the United States. Before it was released, Electronic Arts, which was the largest third-party video game publisher, said that it wasn't going to develop games for it, blaming Sega for changing the hardware configurations and stating that the developers at Electronic Arts didn't want to work on it. On the other side of the argument, it was said that EA was trying to get an exclusive license for sports games on the Dreamcast, which they wouldn't be granted. So while the Dreamcast would not have EA's great titles, Sega Sports, which was developed by Visual Concepts, would sort of fill that area that would normally have been taken up by EA Games. Although, you really can't substitute for what EA probably could have brought to the table. Because they had the time to work on it, Sega of America made sure they had more launch titles when the Dreamcast premiered in the United States, pushing to have a minimum of 15 launch games. The Dreamcast would launch in North America on 9999, September 9th, 1999, for $199, quite a promotion, and it would have 18 launch titles. These were flying off the shelf in the first 24 hours, with over 225,000 units being sold, which would be $98.4 million. Within two weeks, they had sold over a half million units, and they had some good games right off the bat. They had Sonic, they had Soul Calibur, they had a football sim, NFL 2K. By early November, they had sold over a million units. By Christmas, they held 31% of the North American video game market. One of the big problems they had was hardware-related. Some of the GD-ROMs were defective and needed to be returned, but besides that, it was doing pretty well. Unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of variants like they had in Japan for the hardware you can get. There was a limited edition black Dreamcast with the Sega Sports logo on it and matching controllers, which are pretty great looking, but other than that, not a lot of variation in the Dreamcast. 
one of the things that really helped sell the Dreamcast in the U.S. was the ad campaign. And they went with a very unusual one. They call it the Sega It's Thinking campaign. And they got this by partnering with advertising firm Footcone and Belding and spending $100 million in the first few months. And this idea of thinking refers to the technology that is supposed to evolve and be better than humans. It was slightly confusing to many people who did not fully understand what they were getting when a little something like this. While it might have been somewhat successful, I'm not so sure their testing said it was, because in September of 2000, they would refer to the much more familiar Sega Scream in their advertising. Sega! The Sega was released in Europe on October 14th of 1999. By November 24th, 400,000 consoles has been sold in Europe, and by Christmas, it had sold over a half million units, which was six months ahead of schedule. So while things in Japan weren't great, the system was picking up steam and was doing well in the U.S. and in Europe. Still, Sony held 60% of the overall video game market share in North America with the PlayStation. And in March of 1999, they had revealed the upcoming PlayStation 2. Compared to the Dreamcast, the PlayStation 2 was a monster, able to render double the graphical effects of the Dreamcast. Plus, they promised backwards compatibility with the PlayStation games you already had. And those specs were on people's minds. Add to that that Nintendo announced that it was finally releasing its next console, the GameCube. And then Microsoft began developing its own console, the Xbox. And in early of January 2000, sales began to decline. And because of the amount of money that was being spent on the launch of the system, profitability was down at Sega. Add to that the decline of the arcade business, and Sega was having real problems. They estimated that the Dreamcast would need to sell 5 million units in the U.S. by the end of 2000 to remain a platform moving forward. And they would fall short of that goal, selling only 3 million units. And they only got to that number by lowering prices and giving rebates, which just compounded the losses at Sega. When PS2 launched in October of that year, there were all sorts of shortage issues, and there was a kind of hope that the Dreamcast could fill that void being left by people not able to get a PlayStation. But instead, people just really wanted the PlayStation 2. And so, effectively, the marketplace just stopped as people waited to get their PlayStation 2. And eventually, Sega's percentage of the video game market in the U.S. would drop to 15%, with Sony at 50 and Nintendo at 35%. Despite all of these problems, the Dreamcast was selling decently. They were moving units, and they had a whole bunch of great games. Across all regions, they had over 600 games. It had good launch titles, and they estimated that games sold at an 8 to 1 ratio with hardware, which is a decent amount. People buying 8 games per console... But sadly, there just wasn't enough consoles out there to fuel giant game sales. Sega had restructured internally its console and arcade development teams into semi-autonomous studios, which would be headed by top designers. And this meant some really great games were put out. And the amount of creativity was amazing 
which is why many people who owned Sega Dreamcasts were satisfied with what they had. And as I had said, it was pretty easy to develop games for the Dreamcast if you had already been developing games for the PC. So it was a fairly low bar for developers to get into it. Still, they just didn't have the time. The system just didn't last long enough for smaller studios to figure out how to get into the Dreamcast business. Things would go downhill fast. There were shakeups at Sega on January 31st, 2001. Sega announced that it would be discontinuing the Dreamcast after March 31st and that they would restructure the company as a third-party developer for other consoles. They also reduced the price of the Dreamcast and games to try to move inventory, eventually lowering a Dreamcast to as low as $49.95. As part of the restructuring, nearly one-third of Sega's Tokyo workforce was laid off that year, and Sega would survive, but it came at a cost. Worldwide, over 9 million Dreamcast units would be sold, and even after it was discontinued, games would still be developed. In the U.S., that would continue until the summer of 2002. Sega stayed with a foot in the console business because it needed to keep repairing Dreamcast units, and they did that up until 2007. Because of the ease of development, independently developed games continued to be produced for the Sega. The Dreamcast was well-received by a lot of people, and its games were exciting and very well-remembered still by many people. And I think that one of the things that brings a lot of people who enjoyed the Dreamcast together was a sort of anti-PlayStation feeling. This idea that games were getting very dark and sinister and violent. And for Sega and some of the Dreamcast games, there was sort of a hearkening back to the bright, fun, arcade-style games. It felt like, for a moment, this was the future. That bright blue hedgehogs would run through shiny fields, grabbing rings. And there was creativity in the titles that were rolled out. Unusual titles, interesting titles, sometimes crazy titles. And what would happen in other consoles afterwards seems to confirm the fear of a lot of people who enjoyed the Dreamcast, that we would just be stuck in an iterative world where the same titles are just brought out year after year with small changes without anything interesting. Of course, this is all us viewing the world in retrospect as Dreamcast fans and seeing the world that had come afterwards. And so we pin some sort of hope on the Dreamcast. But maybe, just maybe, it was true. Could there have been a console that did things differently? What would our world look like if the Dreamcast existed? What would be the most popular games? Would it be different? Probably not, but maybe, just maybe. And thinking and dreaming about that maybe is a whole lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist and instagram.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you like what you hear, you should follow Peachy on Twitter and Twitch. He's at PeachyPixel8. That's the word Peachy, the word Pixel, and the number 8. The art you see promoting the show was by Christopher Tupa. 
If you like what you see, you should drop by Christopher Tupa's website at ctupa.com. That's C-T-U-P-A.com. Thanks to everybody who's been supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can give the show a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you download the show. It's really those five-star reviews that help people find the show, and it's very much appreciated. If you'd like to support the show further, you can drop by Patreon. The Retroist is at patreon.com slash retroist. Supporters of the show get bonus episodes, bonus tracks, bonus posts and scans, and access to the Retroist Discord, which is a great retro community. Thanks to everyone for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. Sega! 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 This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.